welcome to The Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. In 2021, over 40% of terrorism offences arrests related to extreme right-wing terrorism. Out of 186 such arrests, 20 were children, and of those 20, 19 were linked to far-right ideologies. We're talking about boys, principally 14, 15 years old, said the head of counterterrorism, Matt Jukes, substantially younger than we have seen in the past. It is a well-trodden generalization that young people gravitate to left-wing politics and gradually move away from them. But all across Europe, there is a perception that the current surge of the far right is increasingly fueled by young men. Is that true? If it is, why is it happening? And what can be done to change it? My guest today is a scholar of the topic of radicalization. She's the founding director of the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab at the American University in Washington, D.C. She regularly advises both U.S. and international bodies on domestic extremism and strategies of prevention. She's also an award-winning author whose titles include Hate in the Homeland, the New Global Far Right. Welcome to the bunker, Cynthia Miller Idris. Thank you so much for having me. Cynthia, there is an image, especially in this country, I think, of bigotry being the defining characteristic of the far right and bigotry being a characteristic of primarily white, straight, non-graduate, older men. But polls in many places challenge that narrative. Argentina recently, for instance, almost 50% of voters under 30 supported Javier Millet. So, so where is the truth in that? Is it, is it an older man thing or is it also a young man thing now? Well, youth under the age of 35 have historically been the young men under the age of 35 have historically been the group most at risk for violent action based on those ideologies. So it may have historically been the case that older men were the, more likely to vote, more likely to vote for those parties, um, because they are more likely to vote anyway than 18 mm-hmm. and 19 year olds, right? But always the biggest risk category until very recently was very clearly the underage, uh, under 35 age. That sort of shifted in the U.S. In, in a weird way during the pandemic when we started to see older Americans, for example, but also in other countries, um, you know, storming the Reichstag, storming the Capitol, obviously, in the attack on the U.S. Capitol, standing around. I mean, some older act, uh, violent action uh, motivated by QAnon and by other conspiracy theories as well. So but really, the group I'm still most worried about are young men. Um, they are still, I think, the ones that are, have the least predictable um, trajectory toward violence and The real shift of what we're seeing now compared to previous generations is that where you used to have to kind of be taken by the arm and invited by an individual to join a group um, in the backwoods or some Ku Klux Klan group, now all of that propaganda comes right to you online and you can be introduced to the propaganda. In fact, you are introduced to the propaganda very easily and you can radicalize, you know, right in your own bedroom, um, just on your own screens. And so... That makes it a much different, you know, ball game in terms of trying to counter it. It's not just about infiltrating groups or monitoring or surveilling, um, but really it's about what's happening in the mainstream. 
And what about gender, Cynthia? I mean, it's clearly a big, big elephant in this room. Kevin Passmore wrote that cultural pressure to consume conspicuously and the linkage of consuming to sex appeal leaves poorer young men feeling basically surplus to requirements. Is there something to that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's not just about gender, but specifically about anti-feminism that is, you know, part of what we're seeing as the driver. So there's on the one hand, the kind of the sex appeal, the desire for power, the desire for, uh, you know, to be one of the alpha men, all the things that are coming across a young man's feed on social media that that looks so appealing when you're not even, I mean, you're talking about 14 and 15 year olds. I'm really talking about 11, 12 year olds is what when we're really worried about those first encounters with the Andrew Tate videos, with the, you know, with these deeply misogynist videos, with violent pornography as a normative experience for them, with really not understanding what pleasure looks like, what consent looks like, what equality looks like, and learning a kind of uh, inter- mode of interaction from those types of videos that sets up a hierarchy of superiority and inferiority for them, and then leads into rabbit holes of kind of where anti-feminism is a is a really normative thing. So you see that I mean, and then anti-Semitism and and you know anti-blackness. I mean, you have a whole lot of things that then get scapegoated as this is why you don't have these things. This is why you don't have this power or all these women coming after you. So, you know, I really think the exposure starts, we're really seeing it in middle school. And in fact, hearing from middle school teachers and principals about their concerns about the misogyny among their boys, much more than we ever did, um, you know, just in the last few years. So, it's not just that that's a gateway to other things. It's also deeply problematic for how it reinforces this idea of supremacy as the norm. Do you think is the sort of great replacement conspiracies woven into that? Because what we've seen over here and and absolutely over in the States as well is breaking into almost mainstream politics, this idea that white women need to have more babies, to put it very, very plainly, right? And that and that equality and, uh, you know, liberation doesn't tally with that. Right, right. Well, I think the first thing you have to have in order for that to even be introduced is the idea that women and girls are in service to men, right? Domestic service, sexual service, whatever labor is, you know, desired, whatever, whatever service. It's that you're entitled as a young man to this service. And then you can be thinking about, you know, yes, that, that means having more white babies. That means, you know, women should, you should take away reproductive rights. We should, you know, a lot of different things unfold from that, right? Um, But I think, you know, part of this is that, I mean, you mentioned that the, the, the thread that ties together is, is bigotry. I think even more than bigotry, what I see is a sense of threat is, you know, it's, it's not just bigotry. It's that it's this idea that something is going to be taken away to which I am entitled. And, um, and that kind of idea, that precariousness, that sense of precariousness sets up in an, a huge vulnerability for all kinds of propaganda that come your way that say your white majority country is being taken away, your elections been stolen, your second amendment rights are being taken. I mean, it's constant, this constant thread of propaganda that says something's being taken, right? Or poisoned, the blood of the nation's being poisoned, or these vermin are coming in and infecting you. 
I often wonder, like, why is it so threatening, right? Like, does, do we ever try to address that issue? Like, why is change such a threat? Why is demographic change a threat? Why is, why are women's rights a threat? Like, it's, it's because of this idea that you're entitled to something and that it could be taken away from you. And we've seen that in, 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 you know, data after data point about who participates in extremist action is not the most disenfranchised, but it's people who are afraid of losing something. You mentioned, you know, how online is used as the tool. I mean, much of that segment of the far right, actually of actors looking to radicalize young people to many causes, are exceptionally tech savvy. Umberto Eco wrote that there is in our future a TV or internet populism in which we the emotional response of a small group of citizens can be presented and accepted as the voice of the people. To what extent do you think some of this can be fought by more muscular regulation of the online space? Or is that the wrong approach, actually, trying to put a lid on it? I think it's a mistake to think that we can solve it by putting a lid on it. You know, at the same time, I, I'm not a big fan of censorship in general, but but I do think that when harmful content is there, like really egregious harmful content that violates policies or, or legality, or you're circulating a, a video of a terrorist shooting, I mean, those have to come down. The problem I have is that um, that kind of content moderation, no matter how well you regulate, I mean, Andrew Tate is an example, by the time his videos were taken down, by the time he was you know, um, banned from all the major platforms, the videos themselves have been downloaded billions and billions of mm, times, mm, right? Mm. So it's already circulating. It's, it's, and it will always pop back up, right? That's, we've seen that again with, with the Christchurch videos, with terrorist videos from other settings. So, you know, it's the same way that I feel about law enforcement, which is, you know, once something criminal has happened, of course you want accountability, but I don't think we can ban or arrest our way out of the problem. That leaves us with a need to invest much earlier in kind of both digital media literacy strategies that help people recognize propaganda, but also kind of educational strategies that kind of reduce the fertile, fertile ground in which they thrive. It's not enough to just recognize anti-Semitic propaganda, for example. You also have to sort of understand that that's bad. There are just as many examples, if not more, of very young people organizing around environmental causes, for instance, and things like that. Is there a danger that by focusing obsessively, especially at a media level, on the rise of the far right, while never reporting the stories that buck that trend, we actually normalize it and popularize it further because that's all there is out there. Yeah, this is the perennial question. Is sunlight the best disinfectant or are you kind of adding oxygen, right, and helping fuel the, the, the flames of these types of movements? I mean, what I always sort of feel is it's important to talk about the trends, but also talk about what's effective to prevent it and what's effective at countering it. And, you know, what are countries doing about it? What are communities doing about it? Because I think that's where I run a research lab that has a couple of dozen full-time people now who just create brilliant tools and then, you know, test them. How, how can we equip parents and teachers and mental health counselors, coaches with better tools to recognize 
early warning signs of exposure to propaganda or harmful content, and then know how to off-ramp, especially kids, you know, in these ages where we're really seeing um, first exposure, which is 11, 12, 13 years old, you know, then you start to see violence happen later. Those kids aren't taking violent action, but it's much easier to off-ramp a kid at 11 or 12 than it is to find somebody who's committed to violence at 17, 18, you may not be able to get them back. De-radicalization is a much harder proposition. Jacob Davey from the Institute for Strategic Dialogue says that this is partly because for many young voters, these far-right parties, factions, groups, whatever, they've been part of the political landscape their whole lives. So they've grown up with them. There's little stigmatization. To them. And, I, and I saw that personally, actually, in Greece, because I was away from the country for a period of 11 years. And I can tell you that when I left, people would talk about their children being part of Golden Dawn as if they were in prison or on drugs. You know, it was a, it was a, a, a thing people whispered about someone's child, right? And then I came back 10 years later and people were wearing the T-shirts and and walking, and it was a massive shock to the system. So I guess what I'm trying to get at is, is there a cyclical nature also to this, that as we lose generational memory of what happened last time these sorts of philosophies ruled, we get into a situation where there's you know, we have to accept that it will surge again and we have to beat it back again and then it will take for for a while. Yeah, I think I think some of it is cyclical and I definitely think that there are. I also, you know, spent 15 years doing research in Germany during a time when I would interview young men who often were, you know, 16, 17, 18 years old, but they too, even back then, you know, in the 80s and 90s had been exposed uh, to neo-Nazism as racist skinheads when everyone in their neighborhood, their older brothers, their cousins, all the boys they grew up with, adopted that aesthetic. And, you know, the aesthetics were part of a scene and the scene had an ideology and they didn't know anything different. And it took, you know, some of them kind of literally grew out of it, like just kind of came to be aware of other options in the ways of thinking, but some of them never did. And, you know, I think that there is something to be said about a kind of tipping point in a normalization when so many people in your social circle, whether it's physically, you know, in person or online, are adopting or espousing the same kinds of views. It seems very normal. But I also think there's something a bit different about the way that toxic online worlds work that, that's different from previous, you know, because what we know about online communication, how much more likely you are to be also hostile than you would be in person, right? How quickly you become angry and willing to say things that are just horrific, racist, misogynistic, threatening, vile, things that you would never issue in person if you were arguing with a stranger or starting to, you know, it's, it's much less likely that you rise that quickly. And, and that kind of incubation um, and desensitization at scale, I think, when people spend so much time in spaces where that toxic culture is so normal. One of the things I just heard a, a middle school counselor ask in a question when I gave a talk, one of the things they've noticed is that the kids have just become so much meaner. So, you know, they, they would sort of in the past, maybe if they wanted to 
blow somebody off, they might say, whatever. And now they'll say, why don't you just go kill yourself? Because that's the way they talk to each other online. You know, she feels like what we really need at these younger ages is just like empathy curriculum. <laughs> like, how do you restore empathy? And for, and for older people. Yes. Yeah, let me tell you, we yes. could all use a little bit of empathy curriculum. A lot more empathy. But, <laughs> no, but it's like, it, you can see how it happens if they just, if this is the, this is what becomes normal. It's exactly like the violent porn we were talking about. If that's what you see, that's what you perceive as normal sexual relations. Finally, I wanted to wrap this up by asking you about strategies for engagement and ultimately detoxification, I guess. But, I mean, we've talked a little bit about it at state level. I want to focus on personal level. You know, you do occasionally spot a nephew that seems to be moving in a peculiar direction or do you know what I mean? Like on a personal level, what are the techniques for engaging with people and, and trying to pull them back? Yeah. So the, there's two things I think that are really important to understand. One, the worst thing you can do is often the most natural thing for parents or grandparents or aunts and uncles to do, which is, react with some sort of shame, right? If you, if you shame kids or say, you know, those aren't our values or we don't, you know, we don't stand for that. One of the things we know that does is drive them further online into the sort of open arms of waiting, uh, far right communities who are like this, these were your people. See, they don't even understand. I'll take you in. Exactly. Um, so what does tend to work better is often hard to do, but if you can do it, you can pull it off. It is reacting with curiosity, right? So where did you hear that? Um, you know, where did you tell me about, like, you? Put, if you can put kids in the position of being the experts, teenagers especially, in the position of being the experts, not to their parents, who they often don't want to talk to at all, but to the aunts and uncles or the grandparents that they might be a little more polite to, explaining how memes work, how do memes circulate? Where do you get them? Do you notice, you know, are there patterns in memes? Uh, I heard from a friend down the street that her son shared a Holocaust denial meme. Do you see those? I mean, you know, you can, they all share them, right? And so if you react with emotion first, rather than curiosity, you tend to shut down the conversation right away. Hmm. That's really good practical advice. Cynthia Miller-Idris, thank you for a really wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Alex. Great questions. Remember, if you get value from our work, you should support our work. And you can do so from as little as £3 a month on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. I leave you with the words of the noted psychologist Carl Rogers. Change threatens and its possibility creates frightened, angry people. They are found in their purest essence on the extreme right. But in all of us, there exists some fear of process, of change. The only person who is educated is the one who has learned how to change. This is Alex Andreo in the bunker saying over and out. Good news, your favorite history nerds are back. 
Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. Daily was presented by Alex Andreev. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, the managing editor was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers were Eliza Davis Beard and me, Alex Reese. Our direction by James Parrott, music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Hold up. 